we had the worst absolute performance of my tenure and compared to the S&P, the worst relative performance as well. Relatively, relative results are what concern us. Over time, bad relative numbers will produce unsatisfactory absolute returns. And then he had my one subject is capital allocation and my grade for 1999, most assuredly, it's a D. So he basically, you know, crucifix himself at the very beginning of the letter. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Welcome to this uh, new IBKR podcast. This is uh, your host here, Guillaume Rouchabert from Interactive Brokers Singapore. I am joined for the second time by Stefano Grasso, Portfolio Manager for the Enhanced Value Fund in Singapore. And our topic today is a follow-up of our first podcast about value investing that uh, we uh, released on the 19th of May, which I recommend. So for this second episode, we will drill down further on value investing and get Stefano's Portfolio Manager's perspective What's so special about Warren Buffett? Stefano, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So maybe we can start from, uh, uh, actually, you have quite a story here. Uh, we can start from your first encounter with Warren Buffett himself. When was that and how did it go? So I, I, you know, I physically uh, met uh, Warren Buffett in 2013 in a, in Omaha for one of uh, the annual meetings that I attended in person. And um, the the meeting was very brief, but uh, he pushed me to ask him a question in uh, at, at the following annual meeting. And the question was uh, regarding uh, the leverage level for Berkshire Hathaway. So my my question. My my point was basically giving you know the transition the Berkshire at some point will go through from uh, uh, new management future uh, management but my question was why don't they increase the leverage and uh, basically leave as a task for the next management to just delever the balance sheet a much easier task than find very good investments a much straightforward job to do and uh, when I asked this question, I, I got both uh, Warren, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger to answer. And, uh, you know, they basically, in essence, they said, what you're saying make, makes sense is good, but we're very conservative and, and probably we're not going to do that. Anyway, the meeting goes by and uh, and usually there is a session in the morning, which is when I ask the question and uh, and the break and then a session in, in the afternoon. And it's all, you know, Q&A. So three hours in the morning and a few hours in the afternoon. So when, when we come back after lunch, Warren Buffett turned to Charlie Munger and asked him, what do you think about this, uh, this morning session? And Charlie Munger says, you know, whatever, fine, as usual, and ask Warren Buffett back, and for you, like, how was it? And Buffett says, I really like the question of the Italian fellow. And so, you know, we heard that because the mic were on before the second session started. So I gave a hard time for the rest of the trip to my friends, like saying, you know, there were no other Italian fellows. So it was me. So that was fine. 
one. Excellent. That's a that's a great story. Okay, so I, so I guess like since then you you mentioned you've been constantly following uh, Buffett's moves. Uh, could you elaborate on what moves you followed and what worked and what lesson did you learn? And did you also integrate like, this leverage uh, point of view in your strategies? Yeah. So I mean, I think you know it, it got really intense for me my exposure to Warren Buffett after the first meeting I attended. I set up a daily email alert with uh, uh, Google. So every day I have been receiving a sort of, uh, you know, collection of all the news of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. Uh, and I w when I was in the US, I, I was getting these uh, in the morning and then I moved to London and then, uh, you know, I, I went in uh, Tanzania and for the last uh, few years I was in Singapore, so different time zone. But that email hit me. Now is, you know, a different time of the day. Uh, I have been reading everything I could put my hands on, you know, for a period of probably, I think for the first eight years, I never skipped a day, you know, holiday, traveling, whatever. I always read everything to a point that uh, You know, I, I think I really got in sync with their thinking and the Berkshire had to. I mean, many times I see some events, then I read the headlines and I say, no, guys, you didn't get it. I mean, he's meaning something different, right? So it um, has been uh, a journey that, you know, without even meeting personally, without talking with uh, Warren Buffett, I kind of followed him. And I, you know, I apply to the extent that uh, is possible many of his uh, strategies thinking to my day-to-day -day, uh, job at uh, enhanced uh, value fund with of course the you know the difference in size and the man is the man but still a good push to do its best yeah i, I mean i guess yeah having like this kind of exposure helps you to synchronize the, with his thought uh, thought process and he, he always mentioned about the trading as an intellectual process or uh, intellectual thought process first and and so beyond the emails that you mentioned and the exposure that you have with the automated uh, in alerts you mentioned also you attach quite a particular importance to the famous warren buffett's annual letter to shareholder and uh, by the way we will put the link in the podcast script uh, for the audience and And I, I think you've selected a few letters. Uh, so shall we start maybe with the first one as it defines Warren Buffett's initial trading philosophy, which was written back in 1977, if I'm not wrong. Correct. Yes. And, you know, I think both uh, the letter and the, the transcript and the recording of the annual meeting are really the best way to get the unfiltered uh, Warren Buffett thinking. He really tries to, I mean, to put this in his words, to speak to, he says, his sister, so non-finance background person, and explain the very complex development as it is, uh, you know, uh, one year of uh, a conglomerate development with multiple different businesses and sectors in very simple words and in plain English. And in the first letter, I think, you know, I suggest uh, the letters are few pages from really single digit to maybe 20 pages or so, very short, and uh, they cross from 77. So they go through, you know, crisis, uh, inflation, high interest rates, low interest rates. It's really a journey and a reflection year over year over our time, sort of over our economy. And um, the first letter laid out few concepts that then are picked up again and again. And in the 77, uh, he starts saying, uh, he starts making a distinction 
on how to report earning. And he's saying, basically, I could write to you that our operating earnings were up 37% from the year before. But this wouldn't be fair because our beginning capital was also up 24%. So if I just compare, you know, what he was saying is if I just compare operating earnings, I say I'm 37% up, but I'm using more capital. So I need to factor that in. So he says, that's why I'm reporting that our operating earnings on beginning equity capital amounted to 19%, slightly better than last year and above our long-term average. But still, he started laying out how he would like to, you know, kind of read of financial information in a standard way that is basically taking out the noise from the growth and other things. He basically say, you know, most companies define record earnings when there is a new high, but that means very little if you have retained earnings, because it's the same that, you know, he's saying, actually, after all, even a totally dormant saving account will produce steadily rising interest earnings each year, just because of the compounding, because you invest 100, next year is 105. If you make 5%, and then, you know, the 5% is going to apply to 105. So it's going to be higher and higher and, and so on. So he's basically saying, I don't want to take credit for that. And I'm reporting you in this uh, very straightforward way. And uh, he, another point that come up in this uh, very first letter is a concept that has been driving his investment strategy and career since the very beginning, but consistently throughout, is that he says, we prefer to invest. One lesson that uh, he learned is uh, the importance of being in businesses where tailwinds prevail rather than headwinds. I mean, a, another famous quote, not in this letter is, you know, they say that they invested in Coke because Coke is such a great business that even an idiot could run it. So the point is, I want to be in businesses that have so strong economics that I don't need to worry about if for a few years there is not the best guy running it. Uh, so this is something that already came out. And, you know, this is 77. He's a young man. And, uh, you know, it's very remarkable how few things that laid out there have been like, he would say them in the same way, uh, you know, after 50 plus years. And lastly, he mentioned Seas uh, Candy. And Seas Candy uh, had at the time operating, uh, pre-tax operating earnings of about, you know, 10 million. And uh, of course, now the business has grown, has, you know, probably worth several billions. And uh, this is a company that makes candies and is uh, located in the West Coast, the US, and have been taught in business school as a kind of remarkable business that was very quick to pay back to the shareholder the purchase price and then kept giving dividends year in, year out and providing a very good return. So these are the three things that I would highlight about the 77 letter. Yeah, that, that was in 1977 and uh, we could tell it was already quite making sure not to oversell, which is uh, quite unique when you read annual statement in general, I have to say. So moving on to another yeah. very important letter is the 1999 letter as this year he underperformed from the S&P 500, and he was quite right. upfront about it, right? So you told me it tells a lot about the person itself. Could you give us more insights and content on this uh, 1999 letter? Yeah, so to put things in perspective, I mean, Berkshire had uh, already a quite a long track record. So the confidence uh, in the business uh, definitely there. 
However, you know, has been a couple of uh, interesting uh, years for Berkshire Hathaway because we were, the letter is the 99 letter that was published in uh, February or early March 2020, which was really the middle of the dot-com bubble. And uh, as it periodically happened, when there are bubbles, call it the crypto bubble, everyone is going to, is talking, you know, taking the cap about, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and things. And basically the old fashion investment kind of are less interesting, less sexy, and uh, money get out to go where hot money. And in the dot-com bubble, during the dot-com bubble, the Berkshire portfolio was very much missing that unstoppable rising of the part of the market, the Nasdaq, uh, let's call it. So in 99, the increase in book value per share, that was the yardstick that Buffett uh, used for many years, uh, increased only 0.5%, whereby the S&P increased 21%. And the share price of Berkshire Hathaway decreased uh, about 20%. So there was basically a 40% underperformance in one year. That is something that is uh, unheard of. You know, when you manage money, you never want to report underperformance. They have been always very clear what the yardstick were, the benchmark. And so that was up there. But, you know, you might want to say, hey, just a year is uh, is going to reverse back. Don't worry. He was so plain in admitting the underperformance defects. He starts saying the numbers on the facing page show just how poor our 99 record was. We had the worst absolute performance of my tenure and compared to the S&P, the worst relative performance as well. Relatively, relative results are what concern us. Over time, bad relative numbers will produce unsatisfactory absolute returns. And then he had, my one subject is capital allocation. And my grade for 1999, most assuredly, it's a D. So he basically, you know, crucifix himself at the very beginning of the letter and says, this is what didn't work. These are the businesses. They had also, the problem were compounded by a reinsurance business that they bought that had underwriting losses. And there was also a bit of, you know, noise, but. When the letter was written, Berkshire Hathaway was uh, at the bottom, what turned out to be the top for the market and the bottom for the Berkshire, for the stock Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, the funny thing was that concluding the letter, he has a message of optimism and says, you know, we believe this is uh, not reflecting the true earning power of our company. And we are almost certainly that the S&P will do far less well in the next decade than it has done since the previous decade. And of course, then you go, you can check. 10 years after this letter was written, the S&P was down, you know, maybe yeah, you it was, it was proven was right, more or less, yeah, right. So you, you have a guy that is in extreme under pressure that says, you know, this is what it's happening in a very transparent way. And then says, but by the way, I think, you know, the next decade, which is not a quarter prediction, I don't see how this system can sustain itself at this rate of increase. And guess what? Of course, the S&P was flat and Berkshire was like 2x or so uh, in terms of capital appreciation. So I think it's a, you know, for aspiring uh, 
uh, money manager for people that are interested in investing, being truth to oneself and just saying, you know, just being factual about what's happening is, is a big thing to keep in mind. Yes, absolutely. And maybe one last letter that reflects uh, what you mentioned, but a little bit more like on a technical point that's always very interesting. So that's the 2018 letter. It, it is another turning point because uh, Warren Buffett decided to shift from a per share book value to a share price. So if you could explain a bit the difference and why was that a better measurement of uh, business performance? Yeah, so it's a turning point and he has always been very ruthless about the market participants that uh, change the yardstick. So he hates when manager change the strike price of the stock option for the management team. He hates when there are change in benchmark in investments because, you know, he says people are doing tricks. So it was quite uh, remarkable to see him finally giving in in what was uh, a measure that was not representative anymore of the value of Berkshire. He started using book value when uh, the majority of uh, the Berkshire Hathaway were listed company invested. Uh, I mean, stocks and observable numbers. So it's very easy to calculate the market price. If you own a stock, which is worth 100, your book value is 100. But the problem with time came because of a combination of two things. One, Berkshire started buying more bigger and bigger, uh, more and more you know, private companies. And uh, therefore, there was a shift between what is traded and visible and what is the book value, so the acquisition price kind of the business. And these businesses, you don't mark up, you only mark down if there is an impairment. But, you know, in the example of Seas Candy, probably they have on the book for few million that they paid and the business now is worth a multiple of that but when you you know look at Berkshire book value you don't see that example and you don't see that transformation of the business and so so this shift between listed and private business is making the book value less and less relevant and the second thing is an accounting rule uh, I think is from the 70s in the US when you buy a business, you, you often book a part of the purchase price as a goodwill. So it's the difference between what are the hard assets of the company and the premium that as a buyer you pay to get ownership of the business. And the accounting rule wants to force you to write down this accounting goodwill, I think over a period of 30 or 40 years. So basically, the longer you keep this business, the lower the book value, the more the book value is reduced. And, you know, companies like Geico, the insurance, if you look at Geico number when they took it private, they had the market share was like single digit in the United States and the revenues were a fraction of what they are today. So the business clearly it's worth tens of billions now, but the purchase value not only hasn't increased, but has been reduced by the amortization of the goodwill. So in 2018, he kind of gave in and said, look, it's not meaningful to report this number and it's more, it's not really a fair comparison with the S&P 500. So let's switch to the share price, which is more volatile. That's why he didn't choose it before. But he says it's more reflective of the true value of Berkshire Hathaway, of the intrinsic value of Berkshire Hathaway. And I think the 2018 uh, letter in general is one of the last one where he goes into certain level of details of, uh, you know, uh, explaining certain concepts. So it's another good one that I thought about uh, flagging for reading. Okay, excellent. Yeah, it's quite a change indeed, because I, I think he mentioned 
that he wish he could not see the price of a share when when he he value a, a company just uh, not to be influenced by a, you know if it's interesting or not to buy and he wanted to have it just like an intellectual process so that's that's uh, indeed a shift of, of thought for him uh, even though he keep on of course his uh, value investing so uh, moving forward indeed. I I'd like to ask you actually what is for you the future of value investing and do you think it's uh, threatened by high frequency trading or liquidity crush or any other thing I mean you know recently we read about this uh, ChatGPT fund uh, that is basically you know run by ChatGPT where they ask which stock to put in a portfolio and they're tracking it for the first few days the news was that overperforming the S&P but I think in terms of AI maybe certain strategy will be probably uh, interesting to implement but for high frequency trading and liquidity i think it's actually an advantage uh, you know there are certain funds an example is uh, you know we currently see the recession fear and certain uh, commodity being uh, sold and basically a lot of momentum funds going after these uh, you know, trend and following the trend. If you are a patient investor and you have an investment thesis uh, that is correct, you basically have willing and heavy sellers that are going to sell you assets that you see as undervalued. So if your time horizon is not like a week or a month or a quarter, but you think that the asset is undervalued for the next, you know, three, five years, then is when you can flip into an opportunity and really take advantage of that. So I, I'm positive on uh, actually the impact of the high frequency and the liquidity on, on value investing. Understood. Okay, well, we arrive at the end of podcast today. So thank you very much, Stefano, from the Enhanced Value Fund in Singapore. Uh, that was a great insight about uh, Warren Buffett, and I hope uh, it will entice our audience to read these shareholder letters that are really interesting. Thanks all for listening. And to know more about Stefano, please refer to the link. Uh, we're going to put it in the description. Thanks, Stefano. Thank you. Thank you, Guillaume. Thanks for listening to Traders Insight Radio. As always, there's more content at tradersinsight.news. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice.